Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. One of my aims for this podcast is to highlight how different people are working or volunteering in their everyday lives, even outside of their day jobs, to try and improve their communities or make the world better. So I'm really excited for today's guest. I'm going to be joined by my friend Jeffrey Mock, who is going to be joining us from Durham, North Carolina. I've known Jeffrey for years, uh, since my days at Duke University, where Jeffrey continues to work as an editor for the news service. But in addition to his work at Duke, Jeffrey also has served as a country specialist for Amnesty International USA for several decades now, and most, uh, most prominently as the Egypt and Syria country specialist. For those who aren't familiar, Amnesty International is one of the most prominent human rights organizations in the world. It's headquartered in London, but has offices around the globe. And it started with essentially letter writing campaigns to try and uh, advocate for the release of political prisoners and prisoners of conscience. And now it does all kinds of human rights monitoring and advocacy on a wide range of issues. But Jeffrey has really continued to focus on that issue of political imprisonment, and again, especially in Egypt, Syria, and the Middle East. So I wanted to have Jeffrey on to talk about how he got started doing this kind of work, why he thinks people should care about political prisoners, and also how this kind of advocacy actually works. Does it actually make a difference? And what are some of the ethical and pragmatic challenges around it? So with that, Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an interesting time. (laughs) It certainly is. Um, Jeffrey, I just wanted to start out. How did you get started with Amnesty? What do you do there? And why were you attracted to Amnesty in particular for doing that kind of work? Okay. Well, um, I was interested in human rights. Um, even though I work at Duke, I did undergraduate work just down the road from, at the rival at UNC Chapel Hill. And I did a number of human rights activities then, um, but mostly they were in class academic and some of which were with the school newspaper. Um, so I thought a lot about human rights, but It came in 1986 that I figured, you know, I think about this all the time and I don't do anything about it. I just have these conversations and I I didn't want to be that person that just sat and thought and did. I wanted to do some. And Amnesty International uh, presented that uh, opportunity. And I hate using the word unique, but... Amnesty is really unique in one particular way um, because there are many human rights organizations, but Amnesty allows little schmucks like me who don't have PhDs in Middle East studies, who haven't traveled the world with, uh, with, uh, throughout the world. Um, they just let regular people who believe strongly in something, take action, develop expertise, and actually provide leadership on this topic. And that's um, it, that's really a great thing. Uh, we certainly need 
all all of the people who have spent their whole lives just looking at this one issue. But amnesty allows people who live their lives, who have families, and who uh, do other things for a living, but care about human rights and want to do something about it rather than just talk about it. And through this, I've been able to meet some of my great heroes, and we may talk about some of them, like Saad Ibrahim, the Egyptian sociologist who went to jail and has done really well to much to keep human rights, act, uh, um, uh, civil society effective in Egypt during a really four or five decades of governments just muzzling civil society at every opportunity. Um, and I've gotten to meet even people in countries that I don't know that much about. But uh, the Maldives, for example, this little island um, in, in, uh, in the Indian Ocean uh, has a strong human rights activists. Uh, and I've gotten to meet these people. And they're so inspiring when you do meet them. And it is so fulfilling to be able to help them um, and that's, I mean, and uh, that's what Amnesty International has allowed me to do for 30 years. So it has its flaws. It drives me crazy sometimes, but that basic principle has not changed. Great. And, and we might get to some of the, the flaws a little bit later and uh, also a little bit more about how you're kind of working with uh, some of the local activists and some of the places that you've mentioned. But can you just say, like, what was the first thing that you did with Amnesty? Oh, was it a demonstration? Yeah. Was it a vigil? Was it letters? And how has that changed over time? Well, uh, what I did was joined a local group in Chapel Hill. And that's what got me started on this because the prisoner, each group adopted one or two prisoners and focused their attention on getting that prisoner released. And shortly after I joined, we adopted a Syrian prisoner, a man named Nabil Ibrahim, who was one of three banned communist parties in Syria. This was back in the days of Hafez al-Assad. Um, and uh, I took over case management of this case. And through the six or so years that we worked on that, I developed some Syrian expertise. Um, and uh, through that, an opening occurred in a volunteer leadership program called the Country Specialist Program. And I joined it f uh, as a Syrian country specialist. And then as that, I started working with other local groups who were working on their Syrian prisoners, advising them how to act, you know, work, how to work with that. Also, I interact with the research team that then was in London and now is in the Middle East, uh, Beirut in particular for Syria. Um, and the research team is the team that actually does all the documentation of the human rights violations, checks all of the uh, facts about prisoner cases. They're the ones 
that are probably the linchpin of the effectiveness of Amnesty's work. Because to be effective, one of the lessons is to be effective, you have to be right. You have to be right on everything. You have to be even conservative. If the headlines are screaming that chemical weapons were used in an attack and we don't have the evidence, Amnesty's just not in a position to say, yes, chemical weapons were used just because I read about it in the New York Times. And that is so essential to Amnesty's effectiveness because if there's uh, they ever get a history or a pattern of getting in front of the facts or mispresenting misleading facts, credibility is everything. And without that, the effectiveness just disappears. And you've said effectiveness a number of times, so I just wanted to ask, like, how how effective are these efforts? I mean, does everything, does this actually work ever? Well, um, it, Amnesty has a little tension in that because we like to claim victories. We need to claim victories to, you know, encourage people to say, yes, this is, the, this is something that you should join because you can make a difference this way. However, when a prisoner gets released, we really don't know why that prisoner got released. To give you an example, just this past, uh, about 10 days ago, the most, the editor of the last independent newspaper in Egypt got arrested while interviewing a person outside of a prison. And they got detained. And immediately, not just amnesty, but all sorts of human rights organizations just started raising an international fuss. Now, four hours later, that person was released. Was the inter it, it, most people think that the international outcry was um, was the result of that, and uh, was the result led to the release. Uh, but we can't say for certain. We can't go to President Sisi and say, uh, why did you release her? It could just be that they felt like they didn't need to release her, that just arresting her was harassment enough to start showing that they can act with impunity. So uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I can say the prisoners that we're working on behalf almost to a person say, yes, we want you. They say it makes a difference. When we start getting letters from Amnesty International, even though I wasn't released, the treatment got better. Um, so I, in terms of just showing the prisoners, the people that we're working on and their family members, that they are not alone, that you have, they have support and their story is being heard and shared. That alone provides some effectiveness even if we don't get the immediate outcome we want. And to what extent do people know that these efforts are happening on their behalf, either the prisoners themselves yeah. or their families. Is that communicated to them somehow in most cases? Uh, it, it, it varies. Um, in Syria, the, it's just a disaster and you it's very difficult to get information to them. But Amnesty's 
we have we are in contact with people within Syria, um, and uh, uh, they they the the people who need to know usually find out something. They may not get actual letters. They may not know the extent of the work. They may not know who's being contacted. But even in Syria, the word comes out that Amnesty and other organizations are speaking up. In Egypt, it's generally more clear cut that yes, there are limits. The prisoners are incredibly restricted on what kind of outside access they get. But information does, it, it, that does get to them, either through family members or to themselves directly. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's obviously the importance of the individual cases and, and seeing the value in being able to make some difference on each of those, maybe in some way. But I guess I'm thinking with states like Syria or with states like Egypt, where mm -hmm. if anything, we've seen the regimes become more oppressive, um, the prison regimes in particular becoming uh, even more uh, intense and widespread and the imposition of even further emergency laws you know, during times like this, but really all the time and in places like Egypt. So I guess what's, how do you, how do you kind of reconcile with that, like kind of with the, yeah. the systemic regimes becoming that much more embedded yeah. at the same time as working on individual cases? Yeah, to put some numbers behind that, in Egypt, there's a general consensus that there are 40,000 political prisoners. So why do you pick one out of that 40,000? And, um, and actually, there are consequences to that because if you start picking out, say, prisoners that are friends of congressmen here in the U.S., then you are showing a bias. You cannot show any bias. And that's one of the things that Amnesty is very effective in. And when we pick prisoners to work on, um, we we use a single standard. Has their human rights violation have been violated? Um, when Mubarak was in power, we worked on Muslim brother members that were detained just as much as we were working on people like Ayman Noor, who ran for president against Mubarak and was arrested, or Saad Ibrahim, um, uh, who was in a similar situation. So we're really good about... <laughs> singling out the un, un, uh, unusual suspects. Um, and I do remember going into the Egyptian embassy and um, presenting them a case. When they were expecting us to raise Aman Noor, we presented them with two Muslim Brotherhood cases. And suddenly they're, they started paying attention to us a little bit more because uh, during the conversation. Now, why do individual people... Um, uh, at all. And the answer is, is that if you're asking ordinary people to work on a case, the most effective way to tell the story is through a person. Um, that you want a face to a case, you want some background, you want to know they have children, they, uh, you know, they, they love to play football, they helped out this journalist, or they did this video. They, you, 
using a, a single case can be a great way to enter an issue where the, it's much larger than one person. Um, it, it obviously, we want all 40,000 uh, pr prisoners uh, released, uh, political prisoners released in Egypt, but, um, or all prisoners of conscience released. Uh, but to be, to get that, to get people moving, it just, we've found that it works better if you have a name, a face, a background, a story, than if you just say, well, we're working on 40,000 people. Can you uh, help us out? That just doesn't, that doesn't really take weight with people uh, as, as effectively. For sure. And, and just one clarification, you use the term prisoners of conscience, which I right. know is really common for amnesty and, and people who work on political prisoners. But can you say what that means exactly? Yeah, a prisoner of conscience is not interchangeable totally with political prisoners, because some of these people for, aren't even arrested for political activities. Some of them are just running, you know, literacy programs for children or even puppets. Street, you know, street theater groups. Uh, um, so, a prisoner of conscience is someone who's arrested for nonviolent acts that uh, that uh, that uh, are protected by universal uh, international human rights standards. Most importantly, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the um, template from which amnesty takes its definitions from. And it preserves the right to freedom of speech, to freedom of association, to uh, freedom of religion, to freedom of, um, uh, 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 of, to get, uh, of jobs, as well as social and economic uh, 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 rights uh, and freedom to health. So uh, a, a prisoner of conscience then uh, is someone who's had their rights violated that are enumerated in the Universal Declaration. Uh, the nonviolent issue is important because we uh, will not adopt as a prisoner of conscience someone who advocates violence. However, we do have will express concerns when we see legal systems being manipulated in these kinds of cases. So that if we're seeing an unfair trial against someone who advocates violence, we will raise that concern. If we're seeing the use of torture against someone who uses violence, we will raise those concerns. So our work goes beyond prisoners of conscience to thematic issues of unfair trials, torture as well. Um, but for us to adopt you, you, you have to meet the standards that we set for prisoners of conscience. And are you seeing additional abuses of law, additional um, emergency laws imposed, additional cases of torture or um, breach of justice during the pandemic or has that actually contributed to prisoner releases in some places? How are you seeing things kind of during this period? 
Well, um, uh, let's talk about very quickly on Egypt. Uh, they released a number of patients, uh, prisoners because of COVID. But interestingly, none of those 40,000 that I mentioned were among the release, those released. They specifically avoided releasing the 40,000 political, any of the 40,000 political prisoners. Um, so, and we are seeing in Egypt, the government use uh, COVID, uh, COVID as an excuse for cracking down on journalists. Now, they have been cracking down on journalists for decades, and they have what we consider um, uh, emergency laws that violate the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They already have the laws in place that they can crack down on journalists. They're, they're just saying that this time around, they're doing it in COVID because of COVID. Previously, they were just using, well, they were using counterterrorism as the, their excuse. Um, so uh, we are seeing a lot in Egypt. In Syria, things are actually just pretty standard. I am not seeing any changes uh, because of COVID. Uh, but in, in both cases, we are using COVID to say, well, you have to release the, the prisoners. In both countries, prison conditions are just atrocious, inhumane. Um, and this is not amnesty's position, but I mean, honestly, it seems to me that neither ruler, neither Sisi in Egypt or Assad in Syria really cares if the prisoners live or die. In Syria, there's one prison called Sednaya, where basically if you go there, uh, we don't expect you to come out alive. So they're not going to take any action on COVID to protect those prisoners because that's, uh, that's just not their, their practice. Um, so uh, Syria, it, they don't need COVID to, uh, to increase their oppression because it's, it's, uh, it's there already. You are listening to The Julie Norman Show. I'm wondering when an external organization like Amnesty tries to put pressure on a government like Syria's or Egypt's, you know, we know that the state may not take any action, they might just ignore it. But is there ever the possibility that that kind of pressure and attention can actually make the situation worse for prisoners or put them in increased peril? Absolutely. That is uh, a a concern. And Amnesty came to it a little bit late, but over the last 10, 15 years, they've implemented um, pretty much uh, implemented some guidelines, such as getting family checkoff on taking action on and um, using and actions can be a whole sorts of things uh, so we get approval for can we 
use this person in a news release? Can we use this person in a, a report? Can we adopt the person as a prisoner of conscience? Can we use this person in fundraising? We get family, preferably we get the person's approval, but in many cases we can't get access directly to the person. So we get family or some responsible um, individual uh, close, uh, close to the family to approve each of those. And we will not take us any kind of step unless we have that person's approval. Um, so uh, that's, that's really, uh, I think, uh, made a big difference. Uh, I don't know of any cases where we really made things worse, but I, I believe that regardless of whether there were, these are the questions that we should have been asking all along and we are now asking. Okay. Um, there's also the issue that when a person is released, we often w can bring the person to the US or to other amnesty sections and have them talk about the case. Because for the same reason that I told you, hearing stories from people themselves is really, uh, it's a great incentive and inspiring to do um, human rights work. But it can also be traumatic for the person. And we've been a lot more careful, again, in the last 10, 15 years about trooping out former prisoners of conscience and having them talk about the, the, the things. We do it under circumstances that now that are, that are much more, I think, uh, careful for the, uh, for the person. And, um, and that's all been to the good, but uh, it's something that uh, it's, it, it, you can easily overlook. Sure. And Jeffrey, you know, we've been speaking a bit about trying to appeal to the governments or the states where prisoners are being held. But my sense is that Amnesty USA also tries to advocate to the U.S. governments in particular to also put pressure on those states or governments. Is that accurate? Yes, um, we have full-time staffers who are known uh, as government relations uh, advocacy directors. So they are um, lobbying, they're on Capitol Hill and in the State Department and often in the White House on a regular basis, pressing on human rights issues. At the same time, jobs is to try when necessary to get amnesty members writing their political leaders to encourage them to take a stance. And I should add, of course, we also work on the U.S. government, human rights violations by the U.S. government. Um, and we've been very vocal about our arms sales that have been used in the killings of civilians and war crimes. We've been very vocal about uses in Syria of um, of the U.S. military-led coalition that have violated international uh, standards for war and constitute war crimes. And we've been very vocal about issues from emigration here in the U.S., race. Um, we're uh, so uh, 
it, it was, we, we hit the U.S. government from both sides, both as critics and by encouraging them to take action in foreign countries. Sure. And, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, to what extent does that, does that element of, of advocacy to the U.S. government make a difference, and especially between different administrations? I mean, I think we could make the argument that that Trump has even changed the, or the Trump administration has even changed the norms around the way we think or talk about international law or human rights law in the U.S. But looking at the Obama administration and even the George W. Bush administration, arguably from some from some points of view, uh, perhaps there were more opportunities there. And and at the same time, we my sense is we still don't really see the U.S. putting the pressure on. Right states like Egypt, states like other or, um, other states that, that, that those advocacy campaigns were targeting. Right. Um, we can quickly dispense with the Trump administration because it's been a disaster for human rights and they have no concern for it. Now, there are people still in the State Department who we talk to regularly and do, um, uh, uh, do good work in raising human rights concerns. But... Uh, I, I don't expect the U.S. government to be very effective. And, and as a matter of fact, it, it concerns me when Trump focuses, say, on American citizens arrested in Egypt and successfully gets a release. And then he crows about how he got this American released. And clearly the message is, OK, those other 40,000, I've got mine, those other 40,000, you can do whatever you want, because CC is acting with a feeling of impunity right now. So that's Trump. But the more interesting question is, why didn't we get more progress under Obama, under Clinton, even under uh, George W? Because uh, and there are a couple of cases all three presidents and all three administrations did exactly what we would want them to do on high profile cases. And very rarely, if ever, did we get an immediate successful result. So why is that? Some people think it's because the US government um, just doesn't push hard enough. And if they pushed really hard enough, they, they, uh, they would be more successful. I there are others, as someone who was at the embassy in the Mubarak administration told me and say, you know, I don't know why we should listen to you uh, being the U.S. government. Uh, yeah, we are your out. We are doing all this work to benefit for you in fighting Islamic terrorism and in keeping the peace with Israel. I think all you talk about all the aid we bring to Egypt. I think we're coming pretty cheap. So they didn't feel like the US government had much leverage on human rights in Egypt, at least back then. I think the main important issue is that the US government does not do it with a single standard. If you look at the Middle East, and if I told you a certain human rights violation, if I described to you a human rights violation, like, well, torture, being, being beaten by prisoners. You, and you would not be able to tell what country it is. Is it Turkey? Is it Egypt? Is it Syria? Is it Israel? Is it even in Palestine? Is it in Saudi Arabia? 
there are so many similarities. And yet the U.S. government will identify certain countries to go after them for human rights abuses. Obama once on a trip came to, uh, came to Saudi Arabia, uh, went to Ukraine and then to Saudi Arabia. And he gets into Ukraine and he just lights into the human rights violations done by Russia. Then he goes to Saudi Arabia and he's silent. He did not say a thing about human rights violations. And if you do that, you're never going to be effective in human rights. You have to be persistent, consistent, and apply a single standard. You have to supply the same standard to your allies as you do to your foes. And once you start picking on your foes for, for their human rights violations, what you're doing is you're turning human rights activism into a tool of American foreign policy. And that just doesn't, that will never, ever be effective. Um, Jeffrey, you know, what is, you've been in this work now for, I guess, over three decades. What is something on which your thinking has changed? Like something that seemed true or evident when you first started this work that, that you no longer think or vice versa? Um, one of the things I, I be, <laughs> well, it, it's, it comes down to race. And it's interesting because I work on the Middle East. Racial issues really aren't at the core of it. But um, I can, I've come to understand just how almost anything you look at, you have to interpret it and, and try to understand what kind of racial attitudes, what kind of ethnic attitudes are you bringing. Um, you go to uh, you go to Egypt and you think, you know, that freedom of speech is something that Egyptians want, and they do. Uh, but it's I mean, let me think about this. Uh, you may think that you are not applying Western ideals. I never believed human rights was a Western ideal. Human rights is a universal idea and you hear it expressed in every country from in every continent, from Asia to the Middle East. It is not something the West holds a, a, um, a, uh, a, an ownership of. This came up through all different cultures. And you have to respect that. And you, it's so easy to watch your language and to violate that and to show, let biases come in. One of the things that Amnesty did is that they, I told you at the beginning that our research staff used to be in London. And it was interesting. Mean, we always thought that was effective, and the research teams enjoyed living in London. But now we have this uh, for the last five years, we've had the closer to the ground operation where the research teams 
were placed in the regions that they were working at. Now, that was a difficult transition. And actually, it's put some of the researchers on occasion at risk. The, the Middle East in particular is not always a safe place to work on human rights. Um, but just by getting away, getting that team out of Washington is a message that's really important to the activists in these countries. And that is that we are part, we are speaking not to you, but we are supporting you. We are supporting you in the ways that you want us to support you. We are listening to you. We are, um, we are uh, following your example. These are all things that I've never thought about uh, when I started with Amnesty. And Amnesty actually didn't deal with. Um, but uh, it, it's been a, a difficult transition, but one that's been very important. Now, I mentioned race because once I started seeing it in that perspective, when I come back to the US and I see the human rights violations, it's been really helpful for me to it show me that there are racial aspects to human rights violations that I didn't think there were beforehand. Um, and uh, so that's, that's been a really, this work has really opened my eyes to that. And um, it's, it also reinforces that all human rights work has to be done with humility because most likely you're going to get something wrong. So that's an important lesson in itself, just that. Um, I, I'll, I'll move us on in a minute, but I just want to press what you said about the race element a bit more. Can you just give an example about what you mean when you say that? Well, um, what I mean by that is, let's take a look at healthcare access. You take a look at obesity in, in racial minority populations. And I think, okay, that's, that's something that doesn't really have a racial element. I certainly, I'm here in the South. I, there is a lot of obesity there. But then you, you start listening to them. And I guess it really comes down to listening. And uh, that's uh, to go back to that. You start realizing that access to health care, access to healthy food is divided by racial lines. And that didn't, I mean, that didn't seem innate to me. That didn't seem intuitive to me that access would necessarily be racially divided. But um, when, I mean, obviously, <laughs> when you open your eyes and you look at the facts, it's quite clear that you have grocery stores. I have three grocery stores within biking distance or walking distance of my house. I know people in Durham where they, you know, they don't have a single one within walking distance and they have to drive or take the bus to a grocery store. And I've got um, a, about two different 
I've got plenty of clinics and two major hospitals within biking distance of me. And that's not clear at, at all. Uh, that, that, I mean, and that's not true at all for much of the people in Durham. Um, so it, 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 this, I am drawing a line, but I assure you that by understanding what, how Egyptians and how Syrians approach human rights actually did have a consequence for how I was able to open up to some of these basic facts about race here in the U.S. All right. Um, and Jeffrey, what's, what's the hardest part of this work for you? Mm. Um, not being able to help a lot of people. Uh, on a regular, I, I got an email uh, two days ago from someone uh, who was writing Amnesty who is uh, gay and in Egypt and in need of getting out. And he said, can you get me out of the country? During the, war, uh, during the early years of the Syrian conflict, I was getting those on a, on a weekly basis. Can you get me out of Syria? We can't. We just can't. Um, it, uh, it's not just the current immigration it, it's even tougher now, but uh, even back uh, at the beginning of all of this, it was not um, uh, uh, it, something that we could do. Uh, and I do, one of the things I do do is a lot of asylum cases. I write documentations in support of asylum cases about eight to 10 a year. But that only can happen once you get yourself to the U.S., and um, and get an immigration attorney and file for asylum. Then we can come in. But we were getting we get these letters from people whose lives really are in danger, and their only option is to get out. And we can't send in, you know, helicopters and pick them up and take them away. Um, so that is that is easily the toughest part is just saying, I can't. There's nothing we can do. That's not and, what I got into it for to say. And how do you deal with that? Like oh, personally? well, if I wait long enough, there's something that comes in that I can work on. So, uh, you, you know, you don't get to spend much time thinking about just one case. Um, you know, in a couple hours, I'm going to be talking with a wife of an Egyptian prisoner who's who's having a really tough time and trying to figure out how can she get her husband out of jail. So um, there, uh, there's always something that you can work on that's at hand for you to turn to. You mentioned you had a few heroes from this work. Who are a few of your heroes? Oh, well, um, it's clearly Saadi Ibrahim, and he's pretty. We we were able to bring him to Duke. I don't remember if you were there when he came. Um, and he got this. He spoke before a full crowd, and uh, I guess one of the reasons why I'm uh, he's one of my heroes is that uh, there is a narrative out there that Arabs don't care about democracy, that they don't care about freedom at all. Um, and uh, uh, Saad Ibrahim just can, you know, make that narrative go away because he's a sociologist and he has the evidence 
and not just anecdotal evidence, but statistic evidence, but he's also a great speaker. And you just, you just um, really, really uh, uh, appreciate that. Uh, Mohammed Sultan was someone who did get released uh, after a lot of work from uh, Amnesty, but also a lot of uh, other organizations. He's right now working in Washington and doing uh, his best to get Egyptian Americans or Egyptians that are in America who care about what's going on in Egypt working together to try to bring change over there. Um, uh, so those are two people, uh, but a lot of the heroes are also the people that I work with, folks that, uh, well, let's see, Patrick O'Neill. <laughs> uh, he's a local resident who's now in jail for his, uh, you know, rather for trespassing on a, uh, a military site where there are nuclear weapons as part of his protests against nuclear weapons. Uh, I went to many death penalty vigils with him and he always got arrested at the death penalty. Getting arrested ain't, isn't my thing, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I gotta say, I, talking to him was, has always been one of the most inspiring things. And the last thing that I'll mention is what these folks have in common is again, they're really, they never thought of themselves as special. They just felt that they were principled people and they were going to act on them. And that can make anyone a hero whenever you do that. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeffrey, this has been great. Oh, uh, I know you have very important <laughs> other things to get to, including um, speaking with families of those who are in prison. But before we break, I just wanted to ask, are there any book recommendations yeah. or other resources you would recommend for people well, please go to amnesty.org and our country pages because uh, they're actually real. Uh, There's stuff there that you won't get in the newspaper. Um, in terms of books, I, I hope this doesn't disappoint you because I think the great book about the Middle East after 2011 and all the uprisings has yet to be written. There's certainly been a lot of books a lot of them in English. I, I haven't, I can't, the English books are often by journalists that do great journalism, but they bring some of the same preconceptions that I've been talking about. And there's always sort of an unsatisfactory feeling. There is a book coming out of letters from Egyptian prisoners that I'm looking forward to seeing to get their stories. And that I think will be very uh, enlightening. But if you, since you did ask for one book that I think is great, I'm going to go back 30 years to Albert Hirani's book called A History of the Arab Peoples. I understand one of his colleagues, he's dead now, has updated it with a second edition that takes it up to the uh, uh, Iraq war. But here's a book that is just both dense and scholarly, but yet very readable, and it is completely devoid of any preconceptions or any stereotypes or even any romance because he, he, he can show why he, it go, he takes it from 
the the beginnings of Muhammad, the Arabs people from the beginnings of the uh, Muhammad up to the current time. And he picks out themes that remain important now about solidarity, um, that uh, that the, the unifying factor of the Arabic language, all of which is really, really significant. And the thing that I like about that is that people, that story, his story is that you have so many folks who think that the Arab world is just inherently divided among Kurds and Shias and Sunnis and Armenians and, and uh, cops and, and Jews. They, they can't imagine a, a region being a, a single unified entity. And um, he says those divisions aren't necessarily the way there, uh, it has to be. And the lessons I got from this book are very helpful in my moments of despair. Because after Tahrir Square, we were all so optimistic about what could have happened to in Egypt. And actually, the opposite of what we hoped for has happened. In the middle of that despair, he comes forth and says, it doesn't have to be that way. It could have been different, and it can be different in the future. And that's the lesson I, I'm not hearing anyone saying. So that's that's what I would end with on that. Jeffrey, thank you so much. This has been great. And I'm just so happy you were able to come on and chat with me today. OK, thank you. Thank you once again to Jeffrey Mock. You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. Original music was composed by Kevin McLeod. If you like this episode, please subscribe, tell your friends, give us a rating on iTunes or Apple, or if you get your podcasts. Stay well, and please join us next time.